My husband loves to barbecue. Does any of, do any of you like to barbecue? I don't like to barbecue, actually, but my husband does. And we, in our family, we all like our meat done a little bit differently. I'm medium rare. My other son, Spencer, is well done. My husband is more rare. Me and Adam, actually, are probably both medium rare or medium, somewhere in there. So my husband has this, this technique for how he knows whether the steaks are perfectly done. Have you heard about this technique? You put your hand like this, and if the meat feels soft, then it's rare. You put your fingers like this, and then you feel this is medium rare. This finger, it's a little harder now. This is medium. This is medium well. And this is well done. I've just taught you something that you learned in Bible study, how to cook the perfect steak. But thinking about this made me think about the tenderness of our hearts. It made me reflect on, well, if that's how we know how steak is, how tender or tough or well done or rare steak is, how do we know how tender or tough our hearts are? Would you think about this for just a moment? Just take a moment, contemplate. If you had to say right now this morning, what is the condition of your heart before the Lord this morning? One through five, what number would you give yourself? Tender? Kind of tough. There's lots of things in life that harden our hearts, toughen our hearts, make us cynical, bitter, calloused, even towards God. Things like being abandoned in a marriage or by a parent. Suffering in the body, like suffering from disease, cancer, sickness. Aging can make us feel hard-hearted towards God because we just don't have the vitality, the ease, the quickness in life that we used to have. We can feel that way when children are defiant, rebellious, or wayward, far from the Lord, not responsive. We can feel that way when a boss is oppressive, condemning. We can feel that way with fear, you know, when fear creeps into our lives and, and it can actually make us feel untrusting towards God, sort of shut down towards him. We don't know what the future holds, or we don't know what's ahead, or we're scared of something that's happening in our lives. There, there are all these things, because we live in a broken world. We live in a, ver in a world that's always coming against us with different kinds of things, and those impact our heart, and they even impact our heart before God. They can tender our heart towards God by drawing us deeper into dependence and surrender and clinging to him, as we know happens in times of suffering. But then there's those things that can also kind of make us dig down deep into our own self-sufficiency and independence and sort of stiff-arm God at times, right? We go through seasons of that, these seasons of tenderness and toughness towards God. Well, today, we're going to look at... We're going to look at the plagues, and we're going to look at the Passover, and we're going to look at Pharaoh's heart in particular. And one of the things that I'm reminded about when I look at Pharaoh's heart is I'm reminded about how my own sin can harden my heart against God. You know those times when, when you know what's right, but you willingly choose what's wrong? And every time we do that, there's a little bit of callousness. There's a little bit of deadening that happens in our hearts when we, we resist God, when we 
turn our hands to him and say, no, I'm not going to do what you asked me to do. I'm not going to follow your leading. Every time that we justify our behaviors or every time we ignore the little whispers of the Holy Spirit, we can shut ourselves down towards the tenderness that we should be feeling towards him. And we are, are, let's just face it, we're not prone towards godliness, are we? We're prone to drifting away from God. There's things in our lives that are constantly pulling us in that direction. And so we have to actually engage our hearts in being tender towards him by responding to his spirit, by listening to his word, by studying his word, by being attentive to the Lord and responsive to him. And of course, one of the best ways that we can do that is to repent often of sin. Repenting is turning from the idols of this world or from the things that harden our hearts, turning toward him in faith and receiving salvation from Jesus. Jesus is the one who takes our hearts of stone and turns them into hearts of flesh. And so when we're looking today, we're going to look at the plagues in the Passover. And as we do, what we're going to see is that God over and over again through the plagues is declaring that he is the one true God who is worthy of worship. And then, as we look at the Passover, we're going to be reminded that salvation is offered to us as well through the blood of Christ. So that's what we're going to learn. There's one true God, and he offers us salvation through the blood of Christ. We had a massive amount of studying this week, chapters 5 through 12. But I want to zero us down on the plagues. We're going to look at the first nine plagues in Exodus 7:14 through 10:23. And then we're going to look at the Passover in Exodus 11, 1 through 12, 30. So today is one of those days where you're going to have to open your Bibles. There are Bibles in the back of the room if you want to grab a copy, if you have it on your phone. I can't pull up all the verses that I'm talking about today. I'm just going to spotlight a few. But it's going to be really helpful for you to just kind of read along in your Bible as we're going to go through this lesson. So let's talk about the plagues. What is a plague? A plague is a he, it's a he, the word in Hebrew means a blow or a stroke, and it indicates that the hand of the Lord is punishing the Egyptians. So, notice as we looked at the plagues that each time Pharaoh resists God, the plagues become more devastating judgments. And the longer that Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians resist God, we feel that the plagues become louder and louder. He is speaking loudly to them through these judgments. Now, why did God take this approach in dealing with Pharaoh? Why did God bring plagues to Pharaoh? Ultimately, God was working to bring Pharaoh and the Egyptians to a place of humility and submission so that they would let God's people, the Jews, go to the land that he was calling them to worship him. But it's also beyond that, because God is revealing to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and to all of us through all generations that he alone is God. There is one true God. There is one Yahweh. And through the plagues and through the miracles, God is proving the Egyptian gods to be false gods, to be, um, to be futile. See, the Egyptians had a, a polytheistic religion. They actually worshipped over 80 gods and goddesses. There were multiple gods for everything in Egypt, and there were gods that were connected to the land and to the water and to the sky. Here's imagery of some of the gods that they worshipped. Now, they were trying as a culture to constantly placate these gods with sacrifices. These gods, were, were they had dread and fear of their gods, and so they always were trying to placate them through all kinds of different sacrifices. These 
we might look at these gods, they look like um, something out of a Marvel comic um, movie or something we might see, and we might think, oh, that's just a figment of someone's imagination. But, but these gods were not nothing. These gods were demonic gods. They were gods that were under the rulership of Satan. They were worshipped in horrific ways, sacrificing of children and all kinds of things. So these are not powerless gods. These are, these are gods who are under the authority of Satan. They're gods who are evil, empowered demons. And they were set up specifically to discredit Yahweh, to discredit the one true God, and to keep God's people in bondage and slavery. Now, what happened living in Egypt for 400 years were that some of the Israelites had also begun to worship these gods. In fact, as we'll see later in our story, when the Israelites go out to the promised land, we see that they, bring, they have brought idols with them. They were worshiping the idols of the Egyptian gods when they were living in Egypt. So God is going to show the world that he is the one true God, that he is the great I am, and he is going to prove these Egyptian gods to be powerless. Now, it's interesting about the plagues because the plagues really fall into three categories. They fall into the category of river, land, and sky. So the Nile River was the only source of water that the Egyptians had until later they dug wells and were able to get spring water. Um, then they irrigated, they used the, the Nile to irrigate their crops, so, but all of their water at this time was sourced from the Nile. So as we're going to notice, the first two plagues are against the god of the Nile. Then there's the land. So Egypt has a vast amount of land, spacious amount of land. Um, it was rich and it was fertile land when it was irrigated. So we're going to notice that the second four plagues are against the gods of the land. And then the sky. Egypt is sunny, warm, cloudless. It's always sunny every day there. So the last four plagues are against the gods of the sun. So I want to walk you through these plagues, and I want you to see how these plagues are specifically targeted to discredit the gods of Egypt. Let's look at the first one, the plague of blood. This is the first plague of the Nile found in Exodus 7, 14 through 18. The Egyptians depended on the Nile. The Nile was their water source. It was full of fish that they ate for food. And so the first plague of the blood not only turned the blood in the, in, the, in the river, not only turned the water of the river to blood, but what was so interesting is that all the water that was stored in any container in the land also turned to blood. This was a judgment specifically against the Nile River god. His name was Happy, and Isis was the Nile River goddess. And so because of this plague, the people had to start digging wells in order to get fresh water. But can you imagine the stench? Can you imagine what it smelled like to have all of these fish die and to have them rotting in these bloody waters? And can you imagine how thirsty the people became and what kind of labor it was for them to start digging down into the ground to get water from, these, to, from the wells in this hot sun? Now, in this case, the magicians were also able to duplicate this miracle. They were able to, to take some of the water from the well, and they were able to duplicate it, turn it to blood. Isn't that silly? If you had the power to do that, wouldn't you turn the bloody water to fresh water? Why would you take fresh water and make more bloody water? The reason they did that is they had, didn't have the power to reverse the miracle. They only had the power to duplicate the miracle. 
And we know in, in 7, verses 22 through 23, it says that so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not even take this to heart, paid no attention to it, was completely unconcerned, shrugged the whole thing off. So then came the plague of the frogs. This is the second plague of the Nile, found in Exodus 8, 1 through 4. And this is an act of, of defiance against the goddess Hecate. In, the, in Egypt, the frog was a symbol of fertility, and so Hecate was the goddess of fertility and childbirth, and actually she had the head of a frog. That's what she looked like. Now, there were frogs everywhere, and actually, I like frogs. I always think it's delightful to see a frog, but probably not as many frogs as showed up on this day. And of course, the magicians were able to counterfeit this miracle as well. They, they were able to make more frogs, but... Again, if you had that power, wouldn't you just make the frogs disappear? Why make more frogs? Pharaoh then tells Moses and Aaron, he says, pray that the Lord will remove these frogs. And then he says he'll let the people go. And then Moses tells Pharaoh, well, then let's, let's set the exact time when these frogs will be removed. And so just, I think, he wants to prove that this is the work of the one true God. So Pharaoh says, well, I'll ha have them removed tomorrow. Maybe he's thinking that in the course of another day, the frogs would just naturally jump away and disappear, and then God wouldn't have to get the credit for actually removing the frogs. But again, then when the pressure is off Pharaoh, he returns to his stubbornness. And in verse 15, it says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And by killing the frogs, instead of making them jump back into the water, so God killed the frogs. He didn't just have them jump back into the land. By doing that, again, there was a stench that rose up in the land, and the people who had a very visible sense of the condition of Pharaoh's heart was that there was a stench in his stubborn heart as well. The third plague was the plague of the gnats. Now, this is the first plague of the land. This is Exodus 8.16. The first two plagues were announced by Moses. Moses said, these plagues are coming, but this plague arrives unannounced, and every third plague arrives unannounced. And so this was the first condemnation of the god of the land. His name was Set. He was the god of the desert, and Geb was the god of the soil. Gnats are described as, as biting, stinging insects. They, can you imagine, imagine like a cloud of mosquitoes that would get into your ears and go up into your nose and they would be all over you, just be breathing them in. This is what this was like. And what's interesting is that the Egyptians were very obsessed with cleanliness. In fact, their priests would wash themselves over and over and shave their bodies of any kind of body hair, and they were constantly keeping themselves hyper-clean in order to be acceptable to their gods. So imagine the misery and the discomfort of these swarms of gnats that are coming, and they're biting people on their bodies, they're buzzing around, they're going into their mouths, they're drinking them, they're sucking their blood. Both people and animals would have been driven to total desperation with these gnats coming into the land. And this time, their magicians couldn't duplicate this act. They couldn't do this. So they, they saw how they were powerless now to duplicate any of the remaining acts that happen. And so they actually go to Pharaoh, and they say in 819, this is the finger of God. They can't duplicate this. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he said he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then comes the fourth plague, the plague of flies. This is the second plague of the land. And here, God warned Pharaoh that this plague was coming. So he told him, this is coming, but Pharaoh refused to believe his word. God even told him when. This plague is coming tomorrow. 
The Egyptians actually, if you can imagine, they worshipped insects. That's pretty gross, if you ask me. In fact, when they had early drawings of their gods, many of their gods um, looked like insects. And this swarm of insects that came upon them, they call it flies, but it's a swarm of insects. It's like flying beetles, spiders, fleas, ticks, bees. Just imagine trillions of bugs swarming in, and then think of all the diseases that they carry. Think of all the the eggs that they would lay everywhere they went. Think of how their larvae would, would crawl on the vegetation, and they were everywhere. But here's so, what's so interesting. You remember that the Israelites lived in the land of Goshen. And so as these flies came in, as this swarm of bugs came in, they were everywhere but in the land of Goshen. And what we're going to see as we go forward now with the plagues is that these next, all of the rest of the plagues cover all of Egypt, but the land of Goshen, right next to Egypt where all the Israelites live, is untouched by all these plagues. This is the first time that we see that God is making a distinction between his people and the people of Egypt. And that's because God is protecting his own. This is the beginning of a kind of deliverance, that they're going to be protected from the suffering that's going to come upon the Egyptians. Um, They belong to God in a special way, and he is going to protect them and keep them safe. Still, Pharaoh refuses to yield. In verse, um, chapter 8, verse 32, it says, But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Now, starting at the fourth plague, we see that Pharaoh wants to start compromising with Moses. And so in, in chapter 8, verse 25, he says, okay, you can go sacrifice, but just stay here in the land. And Moses says no, because he says, our sacrifices are going to be detestable to the Egyptians. We're going to sacrifice animals. You guys worship animals. When the Egyptians see that the Israelites are sacrificing animals, they're going to become so outraged with us, they're going to want to kill us. So we can't stay in the land and worship our God. And so then in verse 28, he says, well, then go to the desert, but just don't go very far. But Moses knows he's not going to let the people go. The fifth plague then comes, the plague of the livestock. This is the third plague of the land from Exodus 9, 3 through 6. So this was another attack on the gods of Egypt. As many of their gods were identified as bulls or cows or rams. Think about this now. God has already decimated the fish supply. Now there's going to be no meat in the land. And can you imagine what it was like to have a land filled with bloated carcasses? Have you ever seen a dead cow? And smelled a dead cow. Can you think about the diseases that would spread from this, these carcasses just laying all over the land? And yet over the border, just over in Goshen, here are the Hebrews' herds, healthy, grazing on grass, protected. Pharaoh's heart, though, was still unyielding, and he would not let the people go. So then came the plague of boils. This is the fourth plague of the land, Exodus 9, 8 through 9. God then had commanded Moses to take soot from the kiln and to throw it in the air. And these are ashes from the kiln that the Egyptian priest used to bless people. But now, as Moses takes them and throws them into the air, um, God is turning this blessing into a curse as these ashes cause the outbreak of ulcers and boils all over the body. In chapter 9, verse 12, says, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. The seventh plague then comes, the plague of hail. This is the first plague of the sky. 
Exodus 9, 13 through 14. This is the longest warning of a plague because it's going to be the most destructive of any of the plagues so far. God is going to release the full force of his plagues on Pharaoh. And we know that Pharaoh's heart has become harder. So as Pharaoh's heart becomes harder, God's discipline of Pharaoh becomes more severe. This time, God told Moses that he was to stretch out his staff towards the heaven, and the Lord was going to send thunder, fire, lightning, and hail to rain down on the earth. And he says, it's going to be like nothing you've ever seen before and nothing you'll ever see again. He says, any person or any animal that's not under shelter when this storm comes is going to be killed. Now, this was an attack on the sky gods of Egypt. Shu was the god of the atmosphere. Horus and Month were the gods of the birds, and Nut was the sky goddess. So God is demonstrating his power over all the gods of the sky. What's interesting is that you have to remember, anybody been to Egypt? I have not been. A few of you have. So it's always sunny in Egypt. In fact, it only rains in Cairo two inches a year. So this is a land of abundant sunshine, and there are places in Egypt where it actually never, never rains. So can you imagine how unusual it would be to have this kind of a storm, hail, thunder, lightning. And this hail was so large that it not only killed animals, but it completely wiped out their fields. And at this point in time, there were Egyptians who feared God. There were Egyptians whose hearts were turning to God in faith. And for those Egyptians who took their herds and took their families and and sequestered them away under coverage, they were protected. Um, But for those who didn't, they died. But God gave them a whole day warning this time that this plague was coming. And this time, Pharaoh admitted that he had sinned, but his confession was insincere, and it didn't lead to him being obedient. And yet, can you imagine, Goshen was completely untouched. No hail, no lightning, no thunder happened in Goshen. Pharaoh then tries to compromise again in verses 10 through 11. He, this time he says, well, I'll let the men go worship the Lord, but I won't let the women or the children go. That way I know your men will actually come back. But this time Moses and Aaron are also driven out from Pharaoh's presence. And as far as Pharaoh was concerned in this moment, he was done with Moses and Aaron. But then the eighth plague comes, the plague of locusts. This is the second plague of the sky. Exodus 10, 12 through 15. Now this plague is about starvation. The fish are gone. The beef is gone. The meat is gone. The grain fields have been damaged by hail. So whatever is left to eat at this point is going to be stripped away by the locusts. And this was the most, they say, devastating calamity to ever hit the land of Egypt. And this land was now completely bankrupt so that not even Osiris, which is the god of fertility and crops, could save them. To make matters worse, all they had to do was look across the border and see that Goshen was filled with grain and animals and trees that bore fruit, completely untouched by these plagues. Not a single locust affected the Israelite community. And then again, Pharaoh makes a false profession of repentance and tries to get relief from Moses. And yet we know that he wasn't prepared to go through with it. And it's so ironic because what happens at the end of this plague is that God actually sends a wind and blows all the locusts into the Red Sea. Now, who do you think is going to end up in the Red Sea as we look forward into these? It won't be long between before Pharaoh and his whole army are also blown into the Red Sea permanently. 
Then comes the ninth plague, the plague of darkness. This is the third plague of the sky, Exodus 10, 21 through 23. This darkness over the land proved that Yahweh was the one true God and that he was greater than the Egyptian sun god. The Egyptian sun god's name was Ra, and everyone believed that Pharaoh himself was the reincarnation of Ra, and Pharaoh was worshipped as a god. Do we now understand a little bit more why Pharaoh is refusing to submit to the one true God of Israel? Because he himself is being worshipped as a god. This was a darkness that could be felt. It wasn't just a blackout. It was that kind of darkness that just penetrates your soul. And this is the last of the plagues before the plague of death. Can you imagine living in a place where it's complete blackout, but then over in Goshen, it's light? Where you can actually, you're in this kind of total darkness, but there's a, often to the horizon, there's a place of light where the people are living normally. This darkness actually symbolized the spiritual state of Egypt and the spiritual state of Israel. It's very easy to see even as we look in our world today. We live in a world where there is darkness and the people of God in this world are light, the light of Christ in this world. We know that the result of spiritual darkness is spiritual death. And so through these plagues, God has been working to discredit every single one of the pagan gods, and he is working to show himself as the one true God. And yet Pharaoh, over and over again, is unyielding to God. He won't submit to God. He won't agree to God's request or his demand that he let the people go. He actually is choosing over and over again to love darkness more than the light, and he's stubbornly refusing the light that was right before him. It's amazing. Do you think about what would it take to say no to God after seeing such amazing displays of his power? I would be terrified to be in the presence of God if I were Pharaoh. And yet the truth I want us to glean from this first look at the plagues is that we also must carefully watch over the condition of our hearts. We need to watch over the condition of our own hearts. It's easy to look at Pharaoh and say, Pharaoh, you hardened your heart. What were you thinking? But we too sometimes don't pay attention to what's going on in our own hearts. The Bible has a lot to say about our need to guard our hearts. In Proverbs 4.23, it says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Psalm 51.10 says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Now, one of the things that you might be thinking is, well, who actually hardened Pharaoh's heart? That came out in our lesson today, so it's important. We want to know the answer to this question because um, we want to know if Pharaoh was freely choosing his responses to Moses' demands, if he was freely choosing them, thereby incurring God's wrath by his own choice, or was he just an instrument in God's hands as God was spinning out his mighty plan of deliverance? If that was the case, then wouldn't God be unfair by holding Moses responsible for what he did? So as we look through this passage, there are seven times in this passage where we at first see Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. In verses, you see them in your lesson, but in 7.15 and 7.22, Pharaoh's heart became hard because he would not listen. In 8.14 and 8.32, it says, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. In 8.19, it says, Pharaoh's heart was hard, 
and he would not listen. 9.7, it says Pharaoh's heart was unyielding. 9.34, it says Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts. Over and over again, we see Pharaoh hardened his heart. He wouldn't listen to God. He hardened his heart. But then it also says three times that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It says the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart in 9.12, 10.20, and 10.27. So we actually see that both Pharaoh and God were responsible for hardening Pharaoh's heart. We know, though, that Pharaoh's heart was already hard at the start. From the first time, Pharaoh's heart was hard. We know that he repeatedly hardened his own heart. Every time he refused to listen to the Lord, he stiff-armed God. He wouldn't listen. He wouldn't obey. He hardened his own heart even further. But we also know that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart by repeatedly sending these judgments upon Pharaoh. And each judgment, each time that Moses came and requested to let the people go and told him that there was a a judgment coming, each time that God came to him, really in grace, because Pharaoh, God could have struck Pharaoh dead. God struck people dead for disobedience. God could have dropped a rock on his head. God didn't have to come to him over and over and over again and ask to let his people go. But he did, by grace, give Pharaoh an invitation to respond in obedience. And every time God did that, he actually was actively working to harden Pharaoh's heart because he gave him a choice, choice upon choice upon choice. In that process, God was active in hardening Pharaoh's heart. But what about our hearts? We, too, are born with a hard heart. We aren't born with a soft heart towards God. We're born alienated from God. In his grace and in his love and in his mercy, he softens our hearts. He tenderizes our hearts so that we can listen to him. He makes us aware of our sinfulness. He taps us on the shoulder. He brings somebody into our world to speak truth about him. And we have this time in our lives where we're really responsive to hearing from the Lord, to to listening to him, to turning our hearts to him. We listen to him every time we hear his word through the scriptures or we learn of his love for us and his plan to save us from our sins through the death and resurrection of Christ. And then every time we choose to believe and to receive Christ as our Savior, we are actively softening our own hearts towards God. But none of us would have a soft heart towards God, at least enough to believe in Christ, without God first initiating an act of grace towards us. God moves towards us with grace, and we respond. And we either respond to, to tenderize, to, to, to respond to him with obedience and yielding, surrender and faith, or we respond to him by stiff-arming him and saying, go away, I don't want to have anything to do with you. People who have soft hearts respond to challenges and difficulties and disappointments and grief and suffering in their lives um, with faith and trust in God rather than with anger and rebellion towards him. How do we then harden our hearts against God? Well, we harden our hearts whenever we see clear evidence of God's hand at work and we still refuse to believe his word or submit to his will. We harden our hearts when we express ingratitude towards him or disobedience to his word, when we don't have any fear of him or his judgments. We harden our hearts toward him when we encounter hardship and we respond with anger towards God. We shake a fist in his face and say, how could you let that happen to me? 
Hard-hearted people say what Pharaoh said in chapter 5, verse 2. They say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? We live in a culture like that right now, where people say, who is the Lord that I should obey him? You know, there's this, this metaphor that says that the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. It depends on the material. I think of that for our hearts. If our hearts are hard and it's ice, the Son of God can melt the ice and turn it to liquid. But if our hearts are hard clay, the sun comes and hardens it even further. So Pharaoh, he was proud. He was unrepentant. He refused to hear God's word. He refused to do God's will. He even refused to keep his own promises. His word meant nothing. And he continually hardened his heart against God as God continually pressed in on him to make a decision and to face the coming judgments. So what is the condition of your heart before God? Again, would you think about that number? Where are you right now? Where are you in your walk with God? Are you receptive? Are you listening? Are you letting the Holy Spirit speak to you? Are you allowing him to soften your heart? Are you submitting your will to his? Are you bringing him your sorrow and your grief and your pain and your fear, letting him come into that with you, letting him walk with you through that? Or are you saying, I got this. I don't need you. I'm not going to listen to you right now. I'm doing things my own way. Well, let's look at the last plague. The last plague, the plague of darkness, set the stage for the most dreadful plague of all, which is the plague of death. There's five things I want us to notice about this last plague, the plague of death. First of all, in chapter 11, verse 4, we see something is going to happen at midnight. So God has said, it's going to happen at midnight. He said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt. God gave them a specific time of when this event is going to occur. In verse 5, he tells them that all of Egypt's firstborn will die. So he says, And every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Then he says in verse 6, we learn that this is going to be a time of national distress. This is going to, there's going to be mourning that has been unprecedented. It's going to be worse than any of the nine plagues that have come so far. He says there will be a, shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be. He then says in verse 7 that Israel is going to be protected. He says, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Israel, Egypt and Israel. And then he says, there will be an exodus in verse 8. He says, and all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, get out, you and all the people who follow you, and after that I will go out. Now Moses leaves the presence of Pharaoh, and it says he was hot with anger hot with anger. This is a righteous anger because, and we know Moses, as we look forward, is going to be prone to a quick temper. I love that he's so human. But in this case, you can only imagine how angry, what, how righteously angry Moses is because of Pharaoh's hard heart. Um, he, I think for any of us to be in the presence of evil and not to be angry would be a sin. And Moses believes God, he knows this devastation that Pharaoh's going to bring upon his people. And Pharaoh's heart is still hard. 
It's as hard as it's ever been through any of the plagues. He is having no regard for God. He's refusing to take Moses seriously. And as a result, he's bringing all of this sorrow upon the people of Egypt. This isn't just about Pharaoh. This is about all of the Egyptians as well. So knowing that the Egyptians believed Pharaoh to be a god, this is the final blow of God upon the false gods of Egypt. And so... Pharaoh is not only going to be rendered completely powerless in face of the one true God, but sadly his own son is going to be, who's going to die. This is the son that he had been grooming to take his place on the throne. Now, it seems apparent that Pharaoh was not the firstborn son because Pharaoh doesn't die in the plague. But his firstborn son, who is being groomed to be the next Pharaoh, will die in this plague. Now, you might wonder, why did God make a plague that would slay the firstborn. Well, in Egypt, the firstborn males were considered sacred. And Moses, if you remember, had warned early on, he had warned Pharaoh that there would be a relationship between the way that Pharaoh treated God's firstborn, which is Israel, and the way God treated Egypt's firstborn. Remember, when our story started, Pharaoh had declared that all of the baby boys be thrown into the Nile. And then he had taken, the, the a later Pharaoh had then taken all of the Israelites and made them into slaves and mistreated them, brutalized them. And so this, these are God's people. And so there is a distinct relationship between the way that Pharaoh has treated God's people and the way that God will treat the Egyptians. So as we go forward, Moses begins to prepare the Israelites for the Exodus. And this, is, this Passover event is going to be the protection for the Israelites against this last plague. Interesting, in what happens in this Passover event is from this point forward, Israel will be joined together as one people. They will no longer be as distinctive in their separate tribes. They will be coming together as one people. They're one community from this time forward. And this word Passover is going to remind every Jewish believer of the blood of the lamb that redeemed Israel from bondage in Egypt. This will become the most significant event in their history. So God had told the people that they were to choose a lamb, first thing to do. He gives very meticulous instructions. The people actually needed to obey every single word that God spoke. Obedience is vital to salvation. There's no thinking for yourself about how to do things in your own way. This is like, here's the word. They had to obey it to the exact specifications. He made a provision for small households. He says, like, if your household is small, you can join up with a bigger household and do this together. But they were to, on the 10th day of the month, they were to take a one-year-old lamb, goat, or sheep. Uh, it had to be without defect. It had to be perfect. And they had to bring this lamb into their home on the, fourth, on the 10th day of the month. For four days, they would live with this little lamb, a one-year-old lamb, in their house. I mean, I have three golden retrievers. I can only imagine how much I would love a little lamb living in my house for four days. But then on the 14th day, they would slay the lamb. They would have to kill the lamb. This was intentional. This needed to feel personal. This was about relationship. This relationship that they would have with this lamb, it would hurt them to have to then kill this lamb. Um, then on, so they would, they would kill this lamb on the 14th day. And then they would take the blood of this animal, they would take a hyssop branch, and they were commanded to go out to their doorposts, and they were to take the blood with this 
paintbrush-like branch, and they were going to paint it on the sides and over the top of their doorpost. This was a sign of obedience and faith for them to do exactly what God had asked them to do. Then they would take the whole animal and they would roast it with bitter herbs. And the bitter herbs were very important. It was to signify their bitter bondage of slavery that they had endured in Egypt. They said, he, God said, the bones of the animal should not be broken. And then they, God told them, now you're going to eat this meat of this lamb, but you're going to eat it in haste. You're going to be, every family member needs to be dressed, shoes on, belt buckled, coat on, you're eating as you're ready to depart at, at a moment's notice. Even a walking staff in their hand. And he said, anything that was left behind should be burned. There's going to be no leftovers because you're not going to be here in the morning. Now, we read this, and if you've read it before, you, you are familiar with the story, and you say, yeah, of course. We know what God was doing. He was teaching them about the Passover, Jesus coming. But to these people, this didn't make any sense. There was no precedent for this. This was completely foreign to, to bring a lamb into your house, to befriend it, to then kill it, to like wipe, put paint of blood over your doorpost, to be eating as you're ready. This is not how the Jews ate. They languished over meals. They didn't eat ready to go at a moment's notice. So they were asked to obey things that were completely foreign to them. This was just doing what God said. As Nike says, just do it. That's what they were asked to do. Just obey. And then the Passover is explained in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt." And then in chapter 12, verse 28 through 30, then the people of Israel went and did so. They obeyed. As the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Death is no respecter of persons. And that night, death touched every family in Egypt. Not a single death occurred among the Israelites in Goshen. Every single person, even the Egyptians, anybody, every Israelite who painted the blood over the door was spared when death came into the city. The truth is that salvation from the penalty of sin is available to you and to me and to anyone through the blood of Christ. Salvation is available through the blood of Christ. What God showed us in Exodus is a picture, it's a foreshadow of what he was preparing to do when he was going to bring his Savior into the world. The people of Israel were saved by their faith and obedience to God by, by believing God, by doing what he said, by painting that blood over the doorpost. The angel of death flew over and did not touch them. And in the same way, you remember when Jesus showed up in the gospels and John points and says, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was the perfect son of God, completely without flaw, completely without sin 
who went to the cross and shed his blood so that if we, whenever we believe and trust, his blood covers us so that death passes over us and we will never see death. We'll never see spiritual death. We'll never be separated from God. We never will be physically dead in the sense that our bodies go to the grave, but our souls go to be with God. We go from life to life in the presence of God because we live under the banner of the blood of Christ. It's amazing. It's amazing that God would have set up such a visual illustration in, amongst his people of salvation as they and we looked forward to Christ and what Christ would do in the significance of being safe and forgiven and having life, being under the blood of Christ. Who but God could have thought of this? What an incredible, incredible understanding when we can put these two things together and understand that in Christ there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That in fact, we know Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think when we remind ourselves of this truth, it softens our hearts. When we remember what is due us because we are sinful, hard-hearted people at the core. And that by God's spirit, he has come and he has tapped on our shoulder and he has softened our hearts so that we can hear him. And he's given us his word so that we can know him. And he's placed his spirit within us because we believe in him. When we remember who we are before a mighty God, it softens our hearts. And when we remember how faithful God has been all of our lives, it gives us greater faith to face whatever it is that threatens to harden our hearts today. So I hope that as we look at this lesson and as you go into your discussion groups today, that you'll just be reminded of how important it is that we watch over our own hearts, that we guard our hearts, that we continually come to the Lord in repentance and faith, that we continually turn to Jesus and ask him to take our heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh that we call out early and often when we've sinned and ask for repentance and forgiveness, and that we walk with him in a relationship where I love to think of it as tender heart, tough skin, or tough skin, tender heart. We kind of do have to have a tough skin living in a broken world. We can't let the things of this world destroy us because we live in a broken world our whole lives before we go to be in the presence of Jesus. But in the midst of that, we need to make sure that we're keeping our hearts tender so that we're full of grace We can forgive, we can um, be receptive to whatever the Lord wants to teach us, and continuing to grow in our maturity and our faith. Will you stand and let me pray as we go out into our groups? Father, what really strikes me in this lesson is that um, you're so worthy of worship. You are the one true God. You are the God of yesterday, today, and tomorrow. You are never changing. You are powerful and mighty. You are victor over evil. You are the um, God of the universe, the God of our lives. And, Lord, you are so worthy of praise. I think too often we make you too small in our own mind's eye, and your word reminds us that, One day we will all be at your feet worshiping you. As you say, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder of how great you are. 
And to think that you are so great and yet you're so loving towards us. You're so personal. You've given us your spirit. You've invited us into your family. We're children of God. Lord, how gracious and kind you've been to us. Thank you that by a miracle of your grace, we have heard you, you softening our hearts and we've turned to you in faith. And I pray, Lord, for anyone here who this morning feels that her heart has gotten hard, crusty, bitter, cynical, that you would use this moment to soften it, to invite her back into your presence, to welcome her, to, to comfort her heart, to assuage her fears, to allow her to really hear the Spirit speak to her and call her forward into surrender and to um, shelter under your wing. We desire to be women who walk by faith. We desire to be women who, who reflect the light of Christ in a dark world. We, we desire to be people who are um, securely um, safe and uh, comforted in relationship with you. So, Lord, thank you for your word. And thank you for what you teach us about yourself. We need to be reminded. And so we thank you for this story. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.